Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. Well, welcome everybody. Good day. Welcome to another podcast, Faith Seeking Understanding. I am your host, Alan Bevere. I am a pastor, retired, a professor, a Bible moth, a theologian in exile, and a peddler of hope. And I am the self-appointed Anselm of Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture at Faith Seeking Understanding University, a completely fabricated institution of higher learning where all seekers are invited to ponder profound things free of charge. Dr. Pidge Bannon is with me once again this week. Hi, Pidge. Hi. How are you, Alan? I am doing great. Good. We That's are so good. ready to go back at Bonhoeffer again. I know. This and, is uh, he's such an intriguing. He's intriguing. Such an incre- intriguing fella. Very intriguing. So we're, today we're going to talk about the confessing church. And the confessing church becomes uh, the alternative to the national church in Germany, which is, uh, you know, basically coddling Hitler. Uh, not that, not that the uh, the members of uh, the the German church uh, are all hook, line, and sinker in with it. There's a lot of debate and argument within the church itself. A lot of people are opposed, but the church for Bonhoeffer and other pastors has become hopelessly compromised. Mm. So they uh, form what becomes known as the Confessing Church. So back up just a little bit. So Bonhoeffer, I think we've talked about this, he has this wonderful, promising academic career. He's bright. He is. He's extremely intelligent. I don't know what, what his IQ would be if they'd have taken it, but I'm sure it was up at the top there. <laughs> And also his involvement with the church, you know, as, as it is over time. I think we've talked before that in his younger days he wasn't really involved in the church too much, uh, although he does go. Um, but, I mean, that is dramatically altered by the Nazis because the Nazis come into power. Uh, he's not go along, going to go along to get along. And uh, so uh, Hitler, again, he becomes chancellor January 30th, 1933. Uh, and um, Bonhoeffer is opposed to to Hitler, and on that very day, just by way of reminder, on when the day that Hitler becomes chancellor, Bonhoeffer gives a speech on the radio, uh, warning Germany. Uh, first of all, he criticizes Hitler, and he warns Germany uh, against uh, against this slipping into this uh, what he calls an idolatrous cult of the Führer, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he's off the air after that. They they cut short his. They don't. He he's finishes. Dead. He finishes what he's saying, but he doesn't know he's unplugged. Yeah, he does. Right. And um, so he's he's one of the first persons to raise a voice for church re- resistance, especially against the persecution of the Jews in Germany. Uh, that's important to him. Um, and he says, "This is one of his famous lines where he says." 
uh, he, he, he feels the church needs to oppose Hitler and the Germans because he says that the church must not simply, and this is the quote, bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spoke in the wheel itself. Oh. So it's not our task, not just to care for those yeah. who've been run over by the wheel. We got to fix it so the wheel can't turn. Yeah. That's what he's saying. All right. So um, in, in November 32... 1932, before the Nazis take over, um, there's lots of stuff happening in the church because Hitler and the Nazis are doing their best to get as much control as they can. You have church leaders, uh, some who are not opposed to the Nazis, others who are. So there's just a lot of mm. turmoil going on in the church uh, in, in Germany. And there is an election of church officials. Uh, now remember, we have to keep in mind, the German Lutheran Church is the state church. Yes. This is another thing we we who are who don't have that in our context have to understand that that it is a state church. Right. Okay. So uh, there's this election for what are known as the Protestant established churches. Those you know, if you're the established church, you're this part of the state church. Just like the church in England is the established church. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so you've got a struggle going on between um, uh, this, what's called the German Christian movement. You've got a lot of younger reformers. You've got pro-Hitler, anti-Hitler, and so it's just there's just lots of stuff going on. So they they uh, uh, have this election, and things don't really turn out the way Hitler would like. Um, it isn't that there are not Nazis in the church, but it, they don't have still have the control mm -hmm. that that Hitler would like to have. So once Hitler becomes chancellor in January 30th of 1933, he tries to figure out what can he do, and so he decides to unconstitutionally. This is not within the German constitution. He decides to impose a new church election in 1933. He doesn't have the people he wants. All right, we're having new elections. <laughs> so Bonhoeffer puts all of his efforts he can into this election because he wants independent people, people who are mm -hmm. not Nazis. He doesn't right. want that. So he puts a lot of work into uh, this election. Uh, these church elections. Um, well, despite Bonhoeffer's efforts, the election is rigged, uh, and you get an overwhelming majority of key church officials uh, who are elected are Nazi-supporting German Christians. Mm -hmm. What a surprise. What a surprise. Shock, shock, shock. <laughs> so the German Christians won a majority. Now, when I say German Christians here, I, I, this is the language that's used, but these are the... These are the what I'm going to call the the nationalist mm, German Christians, mm -hmm. the ones who support the Nazis, support right. Hitler. So I don't want to make it. I shouldn't make it sound like all Germans supported Hitler in the church. But this is often because you also have to remember you don't just have German Christians. You've got Bavarians and you've got other people around. So so what I really mean are the German nationalists. Right. That's that's the word to use. Right. Okay. So they have a majority. Um, not in every place. There are some places that hold out, but they, for the most part, overall, they have a majority. Um, and um, the bodies, by the way, that do not 
elect pro-Nazi uh, leaders uh, become understood as um, churches that are destroyed mm. um, and uh, churches that have become corrupt. Of course, for the for people like Bonhoeffer, it's the other way around. Right. The German churches become corrupt. Right. These are the churches that are trying to stay true to the gospel. Okay. So, because of the Nazification of the German church, that's what we'll call it, the Nazification of the German church, Bonhoeffer wants to institute what is called an interdict. He want, But it's sort of a boycott where he wants to urge pastors to not perform pastoral services. Mm. We're not going to do baptisms. We're not going to do weddings. We're not going to do funerals. We're not doing anything as long as the Nazis are in control of the church. That doesn't really happen because even people like Karl Barth, mm -hmm. who are opposed to the Nazis, think that's really drastic. Mm -hmm. And so that never takes root. But this is what Bonhoeffer thinks we need to do. The pastors need to say, okay, fine, we're not burying people. We're not marrying people. We're not baptizing people. As long as you in the German church are supporting Hitler, we're not doing that. But mm -hmm. that never that never happens. Gosh, I wonder what would have happened. Uh, that would, sure would have been interesting what, what would have happened. Oh, yeah, it sure my would have gosh. been interesting. More of a slaughter than... I don't know. We don't know. Uh, you know, what would have happened at that point? Because, you know, Hitler, the one thing about Hitler is that, I mean, he's a, he's a narcissist and he's into himself, but he seems to be kind of a strategic thinker. In oh, other yeah. words, he yeah. he knows there are certain things that he can't push too fast or too hard, mm -hmm. and he knows there, you know, are certain certain boundaries that he he would like to step over, but he has to wait. Mm -hmm. He's really good at doing this. So, what would have happened? That's a good question. We just we just can't answer that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, in 1933, Bonhoeffer and Hermann Sass, who is a fellow pastor, they are chosen to be, uh, uh, well, they're part of the opposition church leaders, but they're chosen, they're two chosen among the opposition to draft what is, is going to be called the Bethel Confession. The Bethel Confession. Hmm. And this is a new statement of faith in opposition to uh, the nationalist Christians. And um, one of the things about the Bethel Confession that is really important is that it highlights uh, the uh, affirming of God's faithfulness to the Jews, his chosen people. Oh, there's, okay. I mean, there's no mincing words here. God has been faithful to the Jews, and God has chosen Israel. Okay? Uh, obviously, this is not pro-Hitler rhetoric. Right, right. right. Um, now, what happens is, anything that's produced by a group, and then goes through subsequent revisions and subsequent eyes, everything gets edited. Oh, yes. You know how it is. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, and uh, uh, so they draft it up, and then it goes to, you know, I don't know I don't know how exactly the process worked, but it went through a subcommittee or it went to this, <laughs> and things get drafted, edited, included, de deleted, and what ends up being produced is so watered down to make it more palatable because they want to make a statement, but I guess they don't want to offend too many people, mm -hmm. that Bonhoeffer, at the final draft, Bonhoeffer refuses to sign it. 
So one of the guys who drafted the original refuses to sign the final copy, the final draft, because it's just, all the teeth are out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this, this results really in Bonhoeffer. He, he teams up with Martin Niemöller, who is a German pastor, a friend of his, and he's known for his resistance to the Nazis. Uh, they helped form what is called the Ferrer-Notbund. I got to keep my German up, so I got to practice my German pronunciation. It's actually what becomes the Confessing Church. Okay. What becomes the Confessing Church. It was organized in May of 1934 uh, at Barman. That's really important. We'll get to that in just a minute. At Barman, and of course, it's it's an opposition to the the German nationalists. They're really forming an alternative church. Now, this is, again, when you've got this, I'm going to mention this in a, mo in a little bit, when you've got this view of a state church, to actually decide you're going to form another church that it's in opposition to it, you know, if you're a German Lutheran, that's radical. Yeah. You know, we don't think, Protestants in America, we don't think about anything about forming another church. You know, I always that's say, true. I always say Protestants in America, we multiply by dividing. That's right. You know, <laughs> well, do. I don't like what's going on. All right, split the church, start another one. You know, <laughs> you so know, we, just, we just multiply the church by <laughs> dividing it. But, you know, when you do this as a German Lutheran, this is, this is quite the step. Yeah. You have to really believe that things are bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the Confessing Church, which is not large, it, it never boasts a large, large membership, but it, it, it is a major source of opposition uh, to the Nazi government. And out of the Confessing Church comes the Barman Declaration, and we're going to spend probably most of the rest of the time on this, is the Barman Declaration, since this is not the Bethel Confession, it's the Barman De Declaration. It's drafted basically by Karl Barth. Okay. And it's adopted by the Confessing Church. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and it, it insists, among other things, that Christ, and not the Fuhrer, is the head of the church. Okay. Um, and um, that the uh, uh, Protestant churches that have uh, submitted to Hitler, um, that uh, this, is, this is a rejection of the gospel. And it's a re and and what the Barman Declaration does is reject this kind of nationalism, mm. um, uh, and uh, also rejects the idea that we need to go along with this because the Bible tells us to be obedient to the state, which is not what the Bible says, but that's often the way that it's read, um, and that uh, the acquiesce the acquiescing to the Nazification of the church is just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, oh, also, it's it's written to oppose the idea uh, that uh, uh, there was at one point in the German established church, if you were a, not an Aryan, you could not hold a church position. Mm. Non-Aryan. Um, so Bonhoeffer is actually the German Nationalist Church actually offers Bonhoeffer uh, a pastorate in Eastern Berlin. I don't know if they're trying to tame him or what they're trying to do, <laughs> but they offer him this this post, and he refuses it. He refuses it. He's, he pro he says I'm in protest of nationalist policy, so he's offered this, and he refuses he refuses to do it. So he resists the temptation. 
All right, so let's talk about the Barman Declaration because this is going to tell you what the what 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 the Confessing Church is actually trying to say in their context. Okay, so uh, the Barman Declaration uh, is written in 1934. Um, I'm tempted to pronounce the German, but maybe I should forgo that. <laughs> um, and um, these were ado- this was adopted by the Confessing Church, who opposed uh, the, the Nationalist Christian Movement. And uh, they meet in the city of Barman in May of 1934. Um, and they believe that the German National Christians have corrupted the church by making it subservient to the state and by embracing Nazi ideology. All right. And that contradicts the gospel. All right. Mm. So we're not going to read the whole declaration because it's long. But the, I'm gonna, the six main theses of the declaration, here they are. So the first one is that the source of revelation is only the word of God, Jesus Christ. Any other possible sources, earthly powers, for example, will not be accepted. In other words... Uh, no, Hitler is not some kind of authority, authoritative mouthpiece for the church. Mm-hmm. It's only Jesus who is the word of God incarnate, and that's it. And, and we're not going to accept any other uh, uh, truth because only Jesus is the one who gives us revelation. We, if you want to know about God, you look to Jesus. We ain't looking to Hitler. <laughs> not looking to anyone else. Okay. The second thesis. Jesus Christ is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There should be no other authority. So he's Lord of it all. Third. <clears throat> the message and order of the church should not be influenced by current political convictions. So in other words, uh, the church does not have to go with the flow. Right. of what the powers that be want us to do. That's not what we're about. Mm-hmm. Fourth, the church should not be ruled by a leader, read Fuhrer, should not be ruled by a leader. There is no hierarchy in the church. Um, that's an interesting statement because, of course, in the German church and in other churches, there's always a hierarchy. Yeah, there's always, yeah. <coughs> but, detailed, but I very... think they want to just reinforce the point that the the ruler of the church is Jesus, right? Um, it is the body of Christ. Paul says the church is the body of Christ. The church isn't mine. It's not yours. It belongs to Jesus. So was so if it's if there's no hierarchy, does it mean that there's no leadership? That there's no. that they're always no that they're I equality. I don't and... think that's what that they're saying. Um, okay. I, I do think there is there there is one of the things I think that's poking at this is the idea that within the church. You have what what the Nazis are introducing that you can't be in leadership unless you're an Aryan. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also going to at some point that they're going to uh, revoke the membership in the Church of Jewish Christians. So even though you're a Christian and you say you're a Christian in good standing in the Lutheran Church, but be- and you've confessed Jesus as your Lord, but because you're Jewish, you're out. So so I think they're trying to poke at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that even the people who are in charge are also servants, right? Uh, that based on Matthew 20 where Jesus says, you know, in the kingdom, those in the greatest are the least, those at the top. Are sort right. Of. Right. So that's what they're really getting at. So uh, they're, they're trying to say Hitler is not 
Um, well, the other thing is along with it is when you get these movements, uh, these cult-like movements, I mean, you tend to think that the leader is somehow special. Right. Called by God, ordained by God, just, you know. And they stoke that fire. And they stoke that fire, right. Yeah. Yeah. Five, the state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa. State and church are both limited to their own business. Now, again, this is not what we think of separation of church and state. Mm. When we hear that, I think when Americans hear that, that's the first thing we're thinking of. But in the Lutheran understanding of two kingdoms, this is uh, Martin Luther really uh, uh, expounds on this idea. I think he gets it from Augustine in, in many ways. But there are two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of God, which is seen in the church, and there is the kingdom of man, humanity, seen in the state. And that God has ordered both those kingdoms. And so the church, their responsibility is for the spiritual stuff. Uh, and for the state, their response is to keep order, right, and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. law and order and that kind of thing. Um, what they're really against is that the state is stepping into church business like Hitler calling for new elections, mm. basically saying, that's not your job. Mm-hmm. It is the job of the church to work through that. Um, what, what I really what, what's really interesting, um, when we get to the, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, we're going to talk about Bonhoeffer's change of mind on some of this. Mm. Uh, but what they're saying is they're not, this statement doesn't necessarily reject the idea of Luther's two kingdoms. What they're, what they're uh, saying is you are the state and your job is to stay out of church business. Mm. Okay. And um, you're, but you're not doing that. All right. Um, six, the Barman Declaration here rejects one, the subordination of the church to the state. They're equal. Mm-hmm. They're equal with their own responsibilities. Okay, that's Lutheran theology. And two, the subordination of the word and spirit to the church. The church, the Nazification of the church, they become the arbiters of, of Christian truth. And the Barman Declaration will say, no, 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 no. They're not the arbiters of Christian mm-hmm. truth. It's the, word, it's the word being Jesus. When you hear word, you have to hear Jesus. It's the word and the spirit. They're the ones that stand in judgment over the church, not the other way around. Right. And this is what the Nazification of the church is doing. Um, they, let, me, let me quote to you from the Declaration. It says, We reject the false doctrine as though the church in human arrogance could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of any arbitrary chosen desires, purposes, and plans. Mm. So that's the Declaration. And that's got some teeth to it. If you read the whole yeah. thing, it's... It's not been watered down. It's pretty. It's pretty clear as to what's going on. So let me let me just mention some other things about the Declaration here, that just comes out. Uh, the Declaration, the Barman Declaration, proclaims that Christ is so, or, or that the Church is solely Christ's property. Jesus owns the Church. Nobody else. The Church is the body of Christ. Christ is at the head. It's not my Church. Not your Church. It's Christ's church. Um, I've had to remind parishioners at times about that, too, who think the church belongs to them. Yeah. That's another story. Much much less much less interesting than Bonhoeffer's story. Oh, no, story. I bet that would be interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, 
it's solely Christ's property. And it and the purpose of the church, it says, here's the quote, wants to live solely from his comfort and from his direction in the expectation of his appearance. Fuhrer, we're not here for you. Yeah. We're not here for your ends and your desires and what you want. That's not what we're here for. We're here to serve Christ. We're here to do what Christ wants us to do. And they, and I love this language, they reject the domestication of the word hmm. in the church, the domestication of preaching in the church. This is a very Lutheran thing, because, you know, when you're Lutheran, preaching's at the center, right? Right. And the domestication, what you have done, all of you Christian pastors who have signed on to Hitler, is you domesticated the gospel. These are tough words. These are tough words. <laughs> yeah. You've domesticated the gospel in the church. And uh, Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is, they refer to Jesus Christ's lordship as being inalienable, meaning okay. it can't be taken away. You yeah. can't dethrone Jesus. It's not going to happen. Um, and um, the character of church unity can only come from the word of God and faith through the Holy Spirit. Thus alone is the church renewed. One of the things that happens with some of these movements, when these authoritarian movements get into the church and co-opt the church, they want to promise some kind of new vitality. Mm. We're going to, you know, it's not only we're going to remake Germany. Mm -hmm. we're, not going to, we're not only going to remake Germany after. We're going to, boy, you see, just wait till you see what we do with the church. Right? And uh, the Barman Declaration says, no, that's not the way the church is revitalized. That's not the way the church is restored. Um, in the Barman Declaration, they challenge, they challenge their opponents. Test the spirits. Test our spirits and see if they're of God. Prove. Prove that the words of the Confessional Synod of the German Evangelical Church, which is the Nazified Church, mm -hmm. you try those. Test to see whether they agree with Holy Scripture and with the confessions of the fathers. They say, you know what? If you find we're speaking contrary to Scripture, then don't listen to us. If you can come to us and show us scripture where we're wrong, okay, don't listen to us. Um, the thing is about these kinds of authoritarian movements, the people who buy into them, even if they, even if they believe in scripture, even if they believe in Jesus, they're so untethered from the biblical text, they right. really don't. You know, they, they pull out a few verses here and there. They really, I mean, it's, there's nothing biblical about this, right. right? If you want to go, so if somebody from the National Church in Germany wants to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer on Scripture, it's not a contest. Right. But they're not going to do that, you know. Um, right. I always, say, I, I always think that sometimes the problem is is that we, we get off on the wrong path as Christians because we take the culture's values and we just give it a thin veneer of Jesus, mm. right? So we put a little Jesus on it, right? <laughs> put a little Jesus on it, like a bandage, <laughs> cover stuff up, and we're good. But you don't see the, the, the infection below, Yeah. right? I mean, yeah. this is really important. All right. <laughs> so you, uh, you like my images, right? I do. Yeah, just a little thin veneer. <laughs> yeah. The Jesus bandage. Oh. Yeah. Um, and by the way, he says, if you, they say, if you find, if you consider this and you find that we are actually taking our stand on Scripture, uh, then don't be afraid of that, because that's okay. 
God's given us scripture. And we shouldn't fear the path of faith and obedience to the word of God. So, so they're kind of challenging uh, uh, the Nazis uh, in the German church. And then, of course, wonderful reminder. They, they have to end that Jesus promises that, and this is a promise, I think, to even the, the, those who stand in opposition for them. Because the, it must have been hard to kind of hang in there at times. Yeah. And says, just to remind them what Jesus himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Mm. Um, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay. Now, there was modification. I mean, Bart wrote most of it, but it did undergo some modification. Um, and uh, when I talked about the two, the two kingdoms, there actually was a little statement in there about the two kingdoms because apparently there were some of the Lutherans that wanted it in there. Mm. You know, that we... They wanted it in there, I think, because they wanted to say, we still hold to this. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we're, therefore, that we should support Hitler and the right. Nazis. Right, Okay. So this, and this becomes the chief confessional document of the confessing church. Um, and by the way, I want to say, the, I want to talk about the word confessing for a moment. Um I, th- I think it's a, uh, an aptly chosen word because in to confess is to, is to you, know, w- you know, at least as the word has been passed down, to confess is to affirm with people, mm. affirm with others. It's interesting, in the early church, uh, in the fourth century, Constantine comes along uh, eventually gives the Christians um, toleration, not favored status, but toleration, which basically means the empire is not going to persecute you anymore. Mm. So, you know, Christians had undergone persecutions from time to time. So one of the questions that comes up after the persecutions are over is what do we do with people who denied their faith, you know, because they were facing uh, torture or facing execution. There were people who did not, and there were people who did. What do mm-hmm. we do with the people who did? Mm-hmm. The people who stood strong, even though some of them underwent brutal torture, uh, they become known as the confessors. This is an important mm-hmm. point. They become known as the confessors because okay. they conf- they confessed their faith in Jesus, right. even though uh, of what they faced. And Eusebius, who was... A church historian in the fourth century, he writes his ecclesiastical history. He has this, he writes this, he's got this scene of the Council of Nicaea meeting in 325 AD, you know, to hash out questions about Jesus. And he talks about the one bishop who has to be led in blind because his eyes were put out in the previous persecution, mm. and the other bishop that almost has to be carried in because he was battered so, uh, so, so terribly that he could hardly walk. I mean, there's this scene of these people who had put it all on the line for Jesus, mm-hmm. and here they are. Well, these are the confessors. So the question is, well, what do we about to do with the people who denied Jesus? Do, do we let them back in? Do we not? Do we let them back in? Well, it was decided that the only people who should have that decision are the confessors hmm. because they're the ones that went through it, and they stayed strong. They're the ones who should decide if... 
uh, these people who denied their faith mm -hmm. get to come back in. And the interesting thing is, is because of what the confessors went through, they're much more compassionate right. on those who right. denied it because they went through it too. Right. Right. It's just an interesting story. I bring that up to say, this is a good word. The confessing church. Mm -hmm. We are standing in the midst of in the midst of our minority status, in the midst of what's going on. We're planting our flag here and we're saying Jesus is Lord and the church is about the gospel and what's happening in the Church of Germany with Hitler and the Nazis is not the gospel. It's mm -hmm. an anti gospel. Right. We and we're not we're not mincing any words on this, right? Um and so to call it the confessing church, it, I mean, that's, that's a very profound, that we would all be good confessing right. Christians and good, you know, con the church stand and confess, right. even when uh, yeah. the results could not be uh, good, let's say. Yeah. yeah. So that's, so uh, just one or two other things quick. Uh, the document of the confessing church, interestingly enough, today... Uh, the Book of Confessions in the Presbyterian Church USA. So for those who are Presbyterian Church USA, uh, the Barman Declaration is in the Book of Confessions. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's also in the Book of Order in the Worldwide Moravian Unity. Okay. Yeah. So it's still there, and it just kind of testifies, I think, to the ecumenical nature of this document. Right. When you read through it. There's very little. I mean, if you're if you're a Christian, there's very little that you could disagree with. You know, maybe according to your tradition, you know, I might mm -hmm. say, well, that's not quite Wesleyan, or you know, I'm not real crazy about Luther's two kingdoms thing. But other than you know, some things like that, this is this is a great universal Christian document, written in a time when it really counted. Yeah. That Barman Declaration, they didn't get to, a bunch of theologians didn't get together sipping coffee and say, let's write a statement of faith, right? It's not what they did. <laughs> they, in the midst of hard times, they said, here we are. It's Martin Luther's old thing when he's before the Diet of Worms, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. Mm. God help me. So um, that's the Barman Declaration and the Confessing Church. I like it. Yeah. I figured, you know, I mean, a little bit that I read about the Confessing Church, I thought this would be a really interesting to go, really interesting place of worship to yeah. experience, you know? Yeah, what would it be like to worship in a place where when you leave, you don't know what's coming? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. And yet I think, well... But then if, if you put it in the other sense of the church, the nationalist church, um, I think it would be just as unknown what you would encounter once you walked out the doors, too, because you would probably never know. I mean, if you, if you were enunciating something that was anti, yeah. you could be arrested right outside one of the, the, one of the One of the things that happens with these kind of movements, too, is... Um, there are people who like are supportive of the Nazis, but because they say the wrong thing or they do something right. they shouldn't or they talk to the wrong person, they disappear. You know, they're they're on the wrong side. Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis does a good job of portraying evil as evil. Only, the forces of evil only cooperate each other 
cooperate with each other for one common end. They don't mm -hmm. co they don't cooperate with each other because they trust each other. Right. They, they just have one end. You know, you would never, the forces of evil would never call themselves a band of brothers. There you go. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's this wonderful scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where, I don't know if I've told this or not, so I'm repeating myself, but there's a scene where Aureus, uh, who is, who is uh, uh, Aslan's right-hand soldier, he and some guys break into the White Witch's camp and they free Edmund, who's being held by the White Witch, right? And he's he's tied around a tree. And and they get in there, real quickly get out, and when Jadis, the White Witch, comes to the tree, instead of Edmund tied around the tree, it's it's the troll, it's the who was guarding him. He's tied around the tree. And Jadis takes his sword and swings it at him, like he's gonna she's gonna kill him, and cuts the ropes. <laughs> and he looks he looks at her in fear and he says, "You're not going to kill me." And she looks at him with us with that evil face and she says, "Not yet." <laughs> That's evil. That's right? evil. And yeah. so when you get into this the, the, the where the principalities and powers are at work, you don't work together when you're on the side of evil for camaraderie. Yeah. And you don't you you you're in it, you're in it. For your own ends, when your own ends happen to be the same as theirs. That's it. That's mm -hmm. it. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you never trust anybody? You never trust anybody. Yeah, so you're right. You're right. But anyway. All right. <coughs> we got to end there. Next week is the episode we've all been waiting for. Bonhoeffer on stupidity. <laughs> theory of stupid. The theory of stupid. What does Bonhoeffer say when he says we're no longer going to try to convince the stupid person? What does he mean? Does he mean people who aren't intelligent? Mm. Or does he have something else in mind? It's mm. great. This is going to be a good one. This is going to be a yeah. good one. Yeah. Okay. So so I'll, we'll try by next week to smarten ourselves up a little bit. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, friends, thanks for joining us. This is Faith Seeking Understanding. And uh, I am your host, Alan Bevere, and the patron saint of Faith Seeking Understanding is Anselm of Canterbury, who said, I do not understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. So, friends, keep seeking. Bye. Mm -hmm.